Amen. If you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, today we are continuing in a series that you guys have been going through through a number of weeks, the illusions of our culture. And today we're going to be looking at the illusion of happiness. Now this illusion is an interesting one. And it's interesting because the illusion is not the existence of happiness. There absolutely is a type of happiness that the world offers you and says pursuing this happiness is going to make your life uh, satisfying. The illusion is that the world says this kind of happiness and pursuit of this kind of happiness is going to be meaningful, satisfying, and lasting. That's, that's the illusion. And here's the truth. The truth is that pursuing the kind of happiness that the world says pursue is actually meaningless, dissatisfying, and very, very temporary. Now, I want to be up front right at the get-go. I want to lay my cards on the table with you and, and let you know what, what we're going to be doing together today. The goal of this morning is not that you all leave happy and, and skipping out the sanctuary. That's not the goal of this morning. The goal of this morning is not me offering you, here is a type of happiness that's better than the world offers. Let me, let me offer you this other happiness. It's not the goal. The goal is not to stand up here and say, here are the five steps to unlocking true happiness. I don't care about your happiness. And, and the truth is, I would argue that your happiness the emotional good feelings is very low on God's priority list for you. But here's what I believe he wants for you. And here's what I want for you. And here's what I hope will result of our time together. That you would find in Christ for the first time or in an increased way a firm foundation. A deep and abiding joy Something substantial that can never be taken away from you, even when happiness doesn't exist. Because here's the truth about happiness. It's very fleeting. All it takes is one phone call or one slow driver in the left lane of the highway, and we are robbed of all our happiness. It, you know, there's, there's a story as we were driving in here. We were staying at my mother-in-law's place um, two nights ago last night. As I'm coming in, to church for the Saturday night service. I was really happy. I was excited, looking forward to seeing people, looking forward to be able to, to preach and, and enjoy time with you. And everything's great. And my son, my youngest son, was asleep in the back. And Catherine and I are having a nice conversation. And everything's really good. And then it all happens. We get on the QEW. And I've been in Kingston for the last three years. So I don't know what traffic is anymore. That's gone. So we get on the QE and it's backed up. It's going to take an hour to get here. And as if that's not bad enough... Everyone's just driving. They don't know what they're doing. And then Levi starts freaking out in the back seat, and I'm clutching the steering wheel. I'm like, oh, Lord, I, I, I need something from you right now. Um, because my happiness was gone in an instant. No, what I want for you is something substantial. Something unshakable that even when you are robbed of every ounce of happiness that your happy day has earned you, that you will have something lasting in place there. Let's go to Ecclesiastes. You're there already. We're going to start in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're going to be jumping around a few verses here, starting in verse 1. And a little bit of context here. Ecclesiastes is written by a man named Solomon, 
who is the wisest and richest person that the world has ever seen. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So let's just kind of set this up. If Solomon had sex with a different woman every night, it would take him two and a half years to, to get through all of them. That's the man who's writing the words we're about to read. Keep, keep that in mind here. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also is vanity. Verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Down to verse 8. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Down to verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The first thing that the world says, pursue this kind of happiness and it will satisfy you, is pleasure and self-indulgence. The world says, have as much sex as you want, with as many different partners as you want, is to pay no attention to whatever commitments you might have to your spouses. Consume as much pornography as you want and give in to your sinful lust. It's okay. Party and party hard. Drink as much as you want. Smoke as much as you want. Do as many drugs as you want. Deny yourself nothing. Say Say yes to every pleasure that you can have because it's, it's going to make you feel good and it's going to make your life satisfying. Jump into pleasure and self-indulgence, the world says, and you will be deeply satisfied. It's an illusion. It's all a lie. You see, no one ever goes from nothing to daily drug use and, and, and rampant sexual activity. That doesn't happen. There's a process that we get from here to here to here. And that process is interesting in understanding why it is that this is an illusion. See, it, also, it always starts small. A single drink, single puff, suggestive photos of someone. But what happens is your brain very quickly adapts. And then whatever pleasure you receive from this, this stimuli here, you need to turn up the intensity or the actual amount of it in order to receive the same amount of pleasure because your brain gets used to it. So what happens is there needs to be a progression. So it goes from you're consuming maybe once a month and then all of a sudden you realize I need to get into the substance once a week and then you find a point where you're saying I can't function unless I'm doing this every day. I get headaches, I'm anxious. I just, when I get home from work, if I don't have a smoke, if I don't have a drink, I am not a nice person to be around. That's the point that it gets to. You start off with maybe some suggestive photos, to nude photos, to pornography, and then all of a sudden you say, listen, this isn't working for me. I need to take these fantasies and now make them a reality in some way. All the while your brain adapting and your pleasure lasts seconds. 
seconds. It reaches a point where there is this, this, this high, this sense of enjoyment, and then it's gone, and then you're left in this awful place where you're empty and alone. We know it's true. We know it's true. We're in that place where we feel lonely and dirty. And the world didn't tell you about this. The world didn't tell you about this when they said jump into pleasure. Because the happiness that the world was offering you was an illusion. Let's go down a little bit more. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. So next page, same page, depending on your Bible. Go down to verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The second thing that the world says in pursuing this kind of happiness, you'll be satisfied, is success and advancement. So it looks like this. Climb the corporate ladder. Step on a few necks to to get there. Stab some people in the back, but get high up in that corporate ladder. Get your name on the door. Get the corner office. Gain the admiration of all your colleagues and all your employees and have them revel in your glory and your awesomeness. Or or it looks like this. You pursue academic success to the, the highest extent that you can, and you go and you be the best. You get the highest marks so that you can look down from atop your perch at all the buffoons who would get less marks than you do. Or, or it looks like pursue excellence in your sport or your hobby so that you can be the best, so that everyone looks at you and wishes, man, if I could play like that guy could. If only, and everyone admires you, and everyone loves you. Make a name for yourself, and earn the admiration of those around you, the world says, and your life will have meaning. It's an illusion. This too is a lie. I want to be honest with, with all of us here. This second one here of the three is the one that I struggle with the most. My tendency is to pride, and I struggle with pride every day, and I know that it will be a struggle, that with the Lord's help I'll be able to make my way through until the day I die, and then it's not a struggle anymore. But, but how it works out in me is I tend regularly to think more highly of myself than I ought to, constantly comparing myself with other people, sizing them up to see where I'm better, or trying to make them seem less in some way so I elevate myself. I always want to be the smartest person in the room. I always want to be that person that people think, wow, he's really great. Um, I I love to win. And I love to be right. And uh, and that's, that's how this creeps up in me. But when I honestly take a look at myself and that reality, I understand that these things don't satisfy me. At least not in any meaningful way. In verse 16, look at what Solomon writes. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. It doesn't matter how high you climb 
the corporate ladder. It doesn't matter how successful you are at your place of work because here's what's going to happen someday. You're going to get old. You're going to lose your sharpness and they're going to retire you. They're going to hire someone who's younger, pay him or her way less money and they're probably going to do a better job than you do. And then they're going to take your name off the door and you're forgotten. Does anybody here, I mean, maybe there's a few keeners who do, but does anyone here know the name of their great-great-grandparents? Probably not. That was, that was what, 100 years ago? 120 years ago at the most? See, someday we're going to die, and in 100 years, no one will remember us anymore. No one. Our great-grandkids are not going to be talking about how awesome we were. All the great things that we did will be forgotten in the eyes of the world. Our lives are, as the scriptures say, grass that sprouts up in the morning and is gone by mid-morning and its place is remembered no more. See, the world didn't tell you about this. The world didn't tell you about this reality when it said pursue success and advancement because the happiness that the world offered you was an illusion. Let's move on. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. By now you're starting to believe me when I said the goal was not for you to be happy this morning. (laughs) Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Let's start in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Go down to verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away with his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? The third thing that the world says, pursue this happiness and you'll be satisfied, is money and possessions. Get as much money as you can. Get as much money as you can. Get as much money in that bank account as you can and amass for yourself a miniature empire. Surround yourself with a nice car, with a nice home, and with all of these trinkets to amuse you and keep you busy and keep you distracted, and it's going to satisfy you. It's going to make you feel safe and secure because all these things protect you someday. All these things kind of act as a little bit of a guard to protect you from the harsh and scary world around you. And hold on to it tightly. Don't let anyone take away from you what you've worked hard for. Don't let anyone tell you what you need to do with your money and with your possessions because they're yours and you've earned them. Surround yourself with money and possessions, the world says, and you'll be safe and you'll be satisfied. It's an illusion. This too is a lie. Look at verse 11 of chapter 5. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Man, we are so briefly satisfied with our things. 
so briefly satisfied with all the neat toys and trinkets and, and, and possessions that we surround ourselves with. Think about the last time you got a new phone or a new TV. It was awesome. You, you told people about it. You bragged about it. You showed the features of your phone. Maybe you posted about it on social media. Until, until your friend has a nicer phone and a bigger TV. And then what happens? This thing's junk. I need a new one. Your once treasured possession is now garbage. Uh, a couple days ago, my wife's cell phone contract ended. We got her a new cell phone. And I've had my phone for a couple years. I, I really like my phone. Works well. Looks kind of neat and does everything I need it to do. I'm not a really high maintenance kind of guy. And I, I've, ha- I've never once thought, oh, this phone's terrible. I need a new one. So my wife got her phone. And it's really nice. And as soon as I saw it, I was playing with it. I'm like, this is really responsive. And I'm looking. And then I thought, sweetie, you want to trade? I mean, like I might use this more often. I need it. Like now we laugh at that. And it's, it's humorous. But really, that speaks to something broken in us. That I am so unhappy with what I have. And it, it can last days. I know people who bought the iPhone 5. And then when the 5S came out a couple days, oh, well, it looks like this thing's garbage. Like, Moments we're satisfied with the things that we have. Very short-lived. Very short-lived. Let's go to verse 15 of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Solomon says, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away with his hand. If you think that these things are going to provide you with safety and security... If you think your money, your possessions, if that's going to keep you safe, consider this. Someday you will die and you're not taking any of it with you. None of it. You don't drive your car up to heaven and God goes, that's a sweet ride. Come on in. That's not how it goes. When you stand before the king of the universe and there is judgment over your head, your things don't save you at that point. There's no more security To be found in them. You were born with nothing. Literally nothing. And when you die, you take none of it with you. Doesn't matter what suit they put on you when they put you in that box. You don't show up in heaven with that thing on. You take nothing with you. And then what of your security? What then? What then of all these things you've surrounded yourself with? What are you going to do at that moment? See, the world didn't tell you about that. They didn't tell you about the vanity of pursuing things and what was going to happen someday because the illusion that they offered you was a lie. It was a lie. The happiness. Now, at this point of the sermon, I I think it's reasonable to assume that some of us might be thinking, man, Andrew, this is depressing. I mean, you are such a downer right now. And that's okay. And and here's why. We need to feel the weight of this. We need to. We need to see the utter emptiness in pursuing the kind of happiness that the world says it satisfies you. We need to. We need to feel that weight upon our shoulders. Now, it's it's not going to stay there. Remember what I said earlier. 
My goal, and I believe the desire of God for us, is that we would have in Christ something substantial, something unshakable that can't be taken away from us, that lasts even when happiness comes and goes. So let's, let's go over to Philippians. The letter of Philippians in the New Testament. And Philippians is written by a man named the, man named the Apostle Paul, who is one of the most important figures in the history of the church, arguably the most aside from Jesus. And he, now, just so you know, what he's about to say, he's writing from in prison. Now, don't think prison, comfortable couches, he can get his PhD, he has a TV. This is hard prison. And it's his obedience to Christ that has put him in prison. And with that in mind, this is what he says. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And, and we'll give a little bit more context. At the beginning of chapter 3, Paul has rolled out his resume. So he has said, I was by far the most respected of all the Jews. I was more zealous than any of you. I obeyed God's law perfectly. I was the epitome of one to be admired and respected, and I was doing it right. Paul's basically saying, I make you look bad. Compared to me, you look really bad because I am killing it. So he, he rolls out this resume, and then he says this in chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Garbage is the word there. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. This is what Paul's saying. All those things, all those things that provided me with this, this happiness, being well-respected, doing things right, advancing in my career, surrounding myself with things that may have you know, pleased me and, and, and have thought satisfied me, all those things, garbage compared to knowing Jesus. They're garbage. And I would gladly be done with all of them if only I can get more of him. If only I can have him more, I would, I would gladly lose it all over again. Now, he doesn't end there. The letter continues. Flip over to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, uh, midway through, he's writing to his, re his readers here, and he's thanking them for their concern for him, because he's in prison. So he's thanking them that they, they have a desire to help him and love him and care for him and support him in his time of need. And so he's saying that, and then he says this to them in chapter 4, verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is what the apostle has just said. doesn't matter what life brings. Listen, I've had a lot. I've had nothing. I've had money. I've been poor. I have been well fed and satisfied and I have been hungry. I have been loved and respected by everyone and I've been hated by everyone around me. I have been free to do whatever I want to do, and I've been in prison. What he's saying is, what sustains me, what, what that, that foundation that's unshakable, that deep and abiding joy and meaning, it's not pleasure. 
It's not success. It's not money. It's Jesus. Jesus is the secret. Jesus is the key. Everything that my soul desires, he's saying. Everything that, that I want to I wanna find satisfaction, I want meaning, I want purpose, it's in him. He is the one, regardless of my life circumstance. Even when happiness is fleeting, what I need is found in Jesus. Now the question is, what is it? I mean, I could stand up here and say, everything you need is found in Jesus, amen, go. And you kind of walk out of here. That's, that's very abstract, Andrew. How, like, what does that mean? Okay, here is what it is that Paul's talking about. And here is the how it is that he would say, I'm content because I have Christ. Because he is the secret. He's the key to satisfying me. What we need to do is we need to look at the cross. We need to do what Paul did, not just in Philippians, but in all of his letters, his life, his ministry. We need to look at the cross. We need to look, look at what happened on that cross. Because when Jesus dies on the cross, he creates a way for me to know God. Because my sin that I choose, that I love, separates me from God. And so he makes a way so that I can know God and not just know him, but have him for me as a treasured possession, have his Holy Spirit live inside of me. I get Jesus, I get all of him, and he satisfies me. That's what happens on the cross. And there is no experience, no worldly pleasure, no substance, no experience that can compare with knowing the tangible presence of God. Nothing. There's nothing like it. My brain never adapts. I never get used to it. I never find myself saying, well, that's not satisfying anymore. The well never runs dry. There's always satisfaction to be had in Jesus. And I get that satisfaction. I get Him. See, that's one of the things that makes the gospel so sweet. It's wonderful. It's mind-blowing that God would become a man and die for my sins. But you know what's unreal? That I get him. I get him. And he's more than enough for me. He's more than enough for me. No, no experience compares with knowing him. In Christ there's a satisfaction that never runs dry. That's why the apostle would say, Oh, that I would know him. And have him. And I would gladly forsake everything. If only I could have more of him. So that's pleasure. What about success? What about advancement? The work on the cross is a clear message from God the Father that says, you don't have to earn my love. You don't have to work hard in advance that I accept you. I love you. Broken and messy. You're mine. And I sent my son to die for you. And I pour freely on you love and acceptance. I give it to you. You don't have to work for it. Stop trying to make a name for yourself because what you want is people to love you and value you. I love you. I want you. Your mind, that's found in him. And the cross is God's clear message of saying success and advancement is vanity. Looking to be loved by a bunch of other broken, fallen, finite people such as yourself. And so I realize how silly it is to make my name great. It's silly. Because in a hundred years, I'll be forgotten. What I want to do is I want to make his name great. Because of who he is and what he's done. 
that he would save a wretch like me. And I mean that, that he would save someone so wicked and broken as myself. I, I, I don't want to be famous. I want to make his name famous. And that happens when we look at the cross. What about money? What more security is there to be found than in the finished work of Jesus on the cross? His sacrifice was enough to pay the bill for my sins. And Jesus isn't lacking in his bank account. He has more than enough to pay for my sins. And the payment is made in full. And when I stand before God someday, no earthly possession will save me. I'll find no security in the things I've surrounded myself with. At that moment, my security and my safety is found only in the blood of my Savior poured freely on me. That's where my security is. And not only am I secure for that day, but I'm, I'm, I'm secure in the fact that He will keep me to that day. That's why He says, those whom the Father has given me, no one can take them from out of my hand. That I have him and he will never let me go. He won't even let my stubbornness get in the way of him saying, you're mine and I will keep you. And I will sustain you until that day when you find out that what really saves you is my blood. That's what saves you. And nothing, and like, nothing can take Jesus away from me. No recession, no robber, no fire, no flood, nothing can take him away from me. He's mine now and for all eternity. And that's possible because of what he did on the cross. So when we, when we look at the cross in light of the happiness that the world offers, it's no wonder that the hymn writer would be as bold and, and in the eyes of the world crazy as to say, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always, thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure, thou art. He's everything. Jesus is everything. He's everything. And everything that my soul desires is found in him. In Christ and in Christ alone is found deep an abiding joy, a treasure that can never be taken away, a foundation more substantial than happiness. Not worldly pleasures, not the praises of people, not money and possessions that protect me. Everything my soul longs for is found in Christ, in deep, profound, lasting, and meaningful ways. When I'm robbed of happiness, and listen, it's, it's going to happen. I think for most of us, it might happen today. We might be in a good mood, and then all of a sudden something happens, and oh, like, you know, I, I burn the grilled cheese, and happiness is gone. It might happen that quickly. But when happiness is robbed from you, you have Jesus. And he's enough. He is enough when happiness is fleeting and fading. I want to invite the worship team back up. And as they do, I want to speak to uh, two groups of people that I think are here this morning. There are some of you here, I would imagine, who don't know Jesus. Who you couldn't honestly say, yes, he is the, 
He is the one who satisfies the deepest parts of my soul and my joy, my meaning and purpose is found in him and I want to know him more, I want to love him, I want to pursue him. And I don't want to be a fool to believe that the only people in that camp are those who, this is their first time here. Maybe this is your first time here. Maybe you've been coming to church for 30 years and you don't know him. You don't know the joy that is found in Christ. And I want to ask you something. What are you living for? Because here's the truth. You're going to die someday. And you're going to stand before him. And and what are you going to trust in that moment? Are you going to trust in the name you've built for yourself? Are you going to trust in the possessions you've put around yourself? Are you going to trust in anything other than what he's done for you? You need to put your trust in Jesus. And follow him and love him and trust that what he's done is enough for you. And I'll be honest with you. Is following Jesus hard? Yes. Is it a lifelong process where discipleship is slow and I wish it would go faster where he's working on me? Yes. Is he worth it? Yes. You ask anyone here who knows him and loves him and they will tell you, I would trade nothing for the treasure that I have in Jesus. Nothing, because he's mine, because he satisfies me. Think about that. Think about what you put your trust and your hope in on that day when you stand before the king. Because what you're desperate for is found in Christ, and only in Christ. Now, for those of you who know him, who are pursuing him, who are saying, you know, Andrew, listen, I I may not be at that place to the fullest but I know I'm moving in that direction I know in my heart I do want to know him more and I do want to have him more and I do want to pursue him more even though it's difficult and I am finding that he satisfies me more and more I'm seeing that he fulfills the the deepest parts of my soul I want to say brother sister keep pressing into him keep pressing into Jesus Spurgeon said oh for an hour's fellowship with him be gone, intruding cares. Jesus calls me and I run after him. Keep running after him. Keep pursuing him. When the world bombards you with all these lies, no, this will make you happy. This will make you happy. Remember that your deepest joy and satisfaction is found in Christ and Christ alone. And, and keep, just keep pursuing him. Keep, have the cross always front and center in your focus so that you never forget what he's done and how it is that because of that what is found in him is profound and substantial the the happiness that the world offers you is an illusion it's meaningless it's dissatisfying and it's very very temporary in Christ and in Christ alone is found deep and abiding joy a treasure that can never be taken away, a foundation more substantial than happiness. Let me pray. Lord, we ask that you would make this reality known and true in our minds that whether we we have no idea who you are or whether we have been walking with you for years and years, help us more and more every day to know that you satisfy that what's found in you is substantial, that what the world offers is a lie, that our security is in you and the finished work 
that you accomplished on the cross. So help us, Holy Spirit. Help us to see and know and love and pursue Jesus more. That we would be able to say with all sincerity and and express a desire to, like Spurgeon said, be gone intruding cares. Jesus calls me and I run after him. Help us, Lord, to run after you and pursue you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. We, uh, we sang a song earlier, and the chorus was, Hallelujah, all I have is Jesus. And here, here's the truth. If he's all you have, man, you still have more than enough. You have more than enough. And so I pray that we would know that, that even though all we might have is Jesus, that is, that is far more than enough than we need for, for satisfaction deep within our souls. Amen.